Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I've kind of grown to love the post-exhibition come down. I know exactly how it feels. And I know that one morning I will wake up and I will feel different and I will be back. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with John Gupta. John is a climber, an alpinist and a high altitude mountain guide. He's made a name for himself as a Himalayan high altitude expert and has spent the vast majority of his adult life on expedition in the greater ranges. In this episode we talk about the world of high altitude mountaineering and how John accidentally fell into it, before going into detail on how that niche of guided mountaineering has changed due to the media hype over the past few years and why he's thinking about calling all of that a day. John was one of those brilliant guests who was happy to be challenged and was challenging back, and I hope you enjoy the debate and the insights. Before we begin, I'd like to talk to you about Sidetrack magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help, and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to John Gupta. So let's start at the start. Please, can you introduce yourself? Tell me who you are and what you do. Hey, uh, I'm John Gupta, and who am I? Um, I'm a climbing and mountaineering instructor based in North Wales, and I also run a little company that do a lot of high-altitude expeditions. So I kind of find myself split neatly between doing a lot of rock climbing uh, and winter climbing in Scotland and up in the high mountains in the Himalayas and the Karakoram. Cool. And how do you, in your world, become a rock climbing guide, high altitude mountaineer, etc.? You seamlessly blend the, your passion for those things, uh, rock climbing and big mountains, um, through some training and assessments into qualifications that then allow you to go back around almost in a sort of full circle um, and then take people with you, um, i.e paying customers and um, help facilitate those experiences for them. Cool. And how did you get into all this in the early days? Where did climbing <laughs> fall into your life? Yeah, cool. So it's actually quite a good one. Um, I guess 
Uh, like many folk, I was introduced to sort of lots of activities when I was young by my folks. And um, we went camping quite a lot and I was in scouts and that sort of thing. You know, back in the good old days where we could sort of run around in the mud and make fires and have sharp knives in our hands and that sort of thing. Um, but the real catalyst was um, on my year off between school and university, I joined a company called Trek Force, uh, who still exists, but in a very different entity nowadays. And I went over to Belize and into the jungle with a whole load of other sort of 20 to 25 year old uh, folk and joined a really amazing expedition. Um, I've never found a better word than hardcore because it always sounds a bit whiff waffy, but um, hardcore it was um, completely. And we, yeah, we went in for nearly eight weeks into the jungle and as a team of 20, um, yeah, just did what we had to do. But during that trip, there were so many elements of that that I experienced for the first time, you know, the teamwork, the leadership, the hard graft, and ultimately the expedition leader, a guy called Chris Rhodes, who I owe a lot to. Um, I got on really well with him. And I remember sort of the two of us were just in the jungle collecting deadwood so we could keep the fire pile stocked up because everything we did for eight weeks was cooked on a fire um and i was chit-chatting away with him about you know what he's up to next and other jobs he does and the penny dropped that he was getting paid to be there and i was like wow amazing and he told me about deserts and jungles and duke of edinburgh and other stuff that he did and i was just like and you get paid to do this um and that was basically it from then on it was like I won in on this expedition world. Um, and yeah, fast track university. And I did my uh, mountain leader, my ML qualification and my SPA as it was then now RCI. Uh, so when I came out of university, I was bang straight into freelancing and driving around the country, gleaning experience and working my socks off, trying to sort of enter this outdoor world. Um, And I think that, you know, elements of, what you just said and that access point are true of quite a lot of people who are working in that world now. But something that I would say is much rarer is getting into the Himalayan game and the high altitude game. How did that happen? Yeah, so I mean, during life and careers, there are key points that we can all look back on and reflect on. And they're often attached to key individuals. Maybe it's someone who saw promise in you or you had a sort of specific relationship with. Um, but the Himalayas came around quite clearly. So um, when I was about 21-ish, uh, a mate sent me an email with two pictures of two mountains. Or, yeah, two, two pictures of two mountains. Uh, and one I recognized as being Amadablam because it's very iconic. Uh, and I just sort of come across it somewhere, uh, probably in various Everest research things. And the other one was this big beautiful pointy thing that i had no idea what it was but it turned out to be khan tengri and both of these mountains have played a huge role in shaping my career um khan tengri led down a rabbit hole into this thing called the snow leopard award which was the five seven thousand meter peaks in the soviet union which i then yeah age 24 went off to try and do with a mate but that's a whole different story um and amma i was just like looking at looking at it on the screen thinking that thing that mountain is off the charts beautiful so google led me straight to tim mosdale who's um an outdoor instructor come b&b owner in the lake district uh, and a phone call and an email and a couple of beers later in the, a wonderful little bar cafe thing called the square and compass um i got on like a house on fire and obviously i just thought tim was amazing he's just like 
wise beardy man who'd been up Everest half a dozen times and all the rest of it. But anyway, the idea was that I was going to nip into the Himalayas um, in, and trek myself around the sort of Kumbu, around the Everest Base Camp area, which is a well-trodden path, so I could do that on my own, uh, acclimatise a little bit and then join him and his his group on Amadablam uh, and sort of segue in and sort of do my thing. So then he phoned me up a couple of weeks later and said, John, how do you feel about coming out a couple of weeks early and um, taking four clients up Island Peak for me. So I had a quick Google of Island Peak and thought, yeah, I think I could do that. That, that sounds sounds all right. So I was like, great, fantastic. Got really psyched about that. Um, and then he phones me up a few weeks later and says, John, I'm not sure what your plans are, but how do you fancy going out sort of a couple of weeks before that and taking three other people up Island Peak first? So I was like, right, so go to Island Peak, you know, have six days off, meet another group, take them up Island Peak, and then come around to Amma and go up Amma. And he's like, yeah, how does that sound? And we'll just call it like square zero, no cost. So obviously at like 21, I was just like, uh, um, where do I sign? So <laughs> that was that. So that was my entry into the Himalayas. And uh, the season went really well. Um, I learned a huge amount. Um, and the Island Peak trips were great and sort of working with clients. I was already doing in various other places, but to, that was my first experience of working with them and the Sherpas. Uh, on Island Peak. And then, yeah, Amma was great. I kind of just nipped up to camp one and then went from one to the summit and back to base camp. And I think Tim was obviously like, well, yeah, he's obviously strong enough and that sort of thing. And he just very kindly asked if I'd like to come back the following season and work with him, with his groups on the mountain. Of course, I bit his arm off. Um, and then, yeah, you know, it just roller coasted from there. So every autumn I was out on Amma with him. And I'd often put an island peak or a lobiger or something before that with my own clients. And then every spring I'd be out doing something else as well in the Himalayas. So um, I quickly just made spring and autumn my Himalayan season. And then I think it was, yeah, I was 25. So that would have been about 2012. And we were back in Kathmandu post Amma having a few too many beers in Sam's bar uh, in Kathmandu in Tamil. And I kind of just cornered Tim and said, look, come on. Can I can I come on the big one with you next year? And he kind of sort of said, Let, leave it with me. I'll see what I can do. And I'm not sure how, but he sort of found a way that if I could cover my permit, which we all know is about $11,000 and a couple of extra grand for some oxygen and a few bits, then I could get in. So, yeah, a long, long conversation with dad and um, an IOU. <laughs> and I and I took that opportunity um, and it, it was amazing. It's totally amazing to work under Tim on Everest at like 26 um, and it all went really well and yeah you know like it or hate it Everest opened stores so from there lots more doors opened and the career just kept shooting off so that's kind of the Himalayas. Yeah it's really interesting and I think you know to break the fourth wall with it given what we talked about before we press record I suspect we might spend some time in the Himalayas <laughs> in this conversation but I think there's first point I'd like to make or ask you about is the whole idea of paying to work. And actually, like, I feel I'm confident enough to say I'm all for it. Like, I think actually, there aren't many seats at certain tables. And there's an entitlement um, attitude of, well, no, I'm good enough. And you should pay me to come on Everest and you should cover my permit. But actually, and this is my, you know, this is a sort of question as a statement. Why would he do that? when you can pay someone who's done it five times if you want to go and get your you know golden ticket you need to i guess prove you want to do it pay the money play the game 
Is that how you saw it? Is that how it works? And what's the ethics around that, do you think? Good question. I mean, I think, um, you know, Tim, Tim tried really hard to offer me an opportunity. Um, and having done quite a few trips with him and been on the hill with him, um, we work really well together. Uh, and a lot of the time when I'm employing people now, I'm not necessarily interested in how many E3s you've climbed or how many times you've been up Snowdon. You need to have the qualification to tip the box of insurance and you need to have some experience and experience of that mountain or that job would be useful. But transferable skill sets count for a lot, especially if you're not necessarily directly in charge of everything. Um, but what really counts in the outdoors is the people you're with and the team that's around you. So um, I've seen and worked alongside other guides and, and expedition leaders in the mountain who seem to just have some sort of stone wall personality and, and the clients don't seem to enjoy their time on the hill or certainly the time on the hill spent in and around that individual and so that just makes no sense to me. I find that like baffling. Whereas I hope and um, I think because I have a really high return client base and, you know, folk like Tim who seem to have believed in me along the way that actually a lot of expedition leading specifically and mountain guiding more broadly is about being with people that you trust and people that you can believe in and want to be around, um, you know, a fun ultimately so i think that plays a big part of it uh and the sort of i guess the original bit of your sort of question was i totally 100 percent agree that if um i wanted to to sort of go and get something then perhaps i should go and pay for it and go and do it and actually that's what i did do a huge amount at the start of my career to get loads of experience so Segwaying back to uh, the snow leopard thing that I mentioned very briefly, I saved up for months and spent and spent months of my time in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan climbing uh, uh, five, seven thousand meter peaks with a friend just for me that I obviously I paid for entirely out of my own pocket because that's what I wanted to do. And also I knew that that experience would carry me through when I wanted to apply for bigger things. And it's really funny because often uh, in a couple of forums I'm involved with, people are like, oh, I can't get any, you know, can't get a gig to go here with this company or that company. They say I haven't got enough experience and then I have to go with this company to go and get experience, but they won't pay me very much. You know, it's like 50 quid a day to go and lead a trip to Island Peak or something. And I kind of watch these threads build with interest and nobody comes up with the with the crazy concept that you're allowed to go and pay your own way and go and do something like go and climb in Alaska or go to the Himalayas and climb some things and pay for it, which is exactly what I did. So like when I was really, really young, I climbed Elbrus and Aconcagua and Denali when I was like 18, 19, 20, just with a bunch of mates. And we chose those ones because we didn't know about the other ones. And there's loads of knowledge and information about those ones. So it seemed to make sense for us. And we were completely self-organized and self-led. So we made loads of mistakes, but we also learned so much along the way. So by the time I got to like 26 and Tim was, you know, I was sort of poking Tim about coming on Everest. It wasn't like he was just like, 
complete wild card. I'd like to think I had like half a dozen 7,000 as self-organized, self-guided and successful and a whole heap of global high altitude expeditions which were successful. And I'd been, well, I don't know, up and down Kilimanjaro and those sorts of things probably a dozen times by then too. So it wasn't a complete punt on his part. Um, but I did appreciate that he tried his very best to get me along um, for the lowest fee possible. Yeah, that yeah, makes sense. People don't see the graft. I think that sometimes, I, I risk of sounding like an old man, a grumpy <laughs> old man. It's just often it's hard to see. It's hard to see how much effort somebody's put in to get to where they are. I mean, you know, I, I won't make this about me, but I did a decade of expeditions, either ma- uh, earning nothing or losing money before I got paid. Mm. Uh, like literally a decade. You know, yeah, I was yeah. making money in other ways, but every expedition I went on and every expedition that film I made cost me money. And, you know, you're building and proving and building and proving eventually. And somebody eventually went, hey, we want to pay you some money to go on an expedition. I was like, oh, sweet. Amazing. It, it worked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. And that's kind of what I was touching on there with, like, keep watching these conversations on the forums. Um, I felt like there was a bit of a little bit of entitlement in there being like, well, I'm a qualified mountaineering instructor. I can guide on AMA. And I'm thinking, well, actually, it's a different skill set. It's very useful to have technical rope skills and experience, but guiding on expeditions is a very different skill set. And actually, there isn't really a qualification or training program for expedition leading. So um, experience is what counts there. So, yeah, I was like, well, you do realize you're allowed to go and get that experience on your own back and on your own accord. You know, God forbid you could even pay for it. You know, Um, so I feel like that's how I got into it. And I guess that's how I got into it so young and um, ridiculously, perhaps almost in some ways reached the end of that high altitude path in my like early thirties and done more than I could ever have even conceived that I'd ever do in a lifetime, um, let alone by early thirties and being the sort of mind frame and mood for a bit of a change of direction and a shift as well. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, it's interesting the way you talk about the journey and the progression and then, you know, I want to be very clear when I ask this question that like, not only is there nothing wrong with um, guiding or taking clients out in Scotland or the legacy, whatever. In fact, it's an amazing thing to do and lots of people we know do it. But the Himalayas and, and high altitude, it's a totally different thing. Like, why did that appeal to you? And how is it different from your kind of, when I say everyday guiding, I mean, you know, taking people out in Scotland? So I do a lot of everyday guiding, if you like. Um I call it the sort of uh, the more conventional style of job. So more of a nine to five um, out with the clients. And I absolutely love it. I love coming home every night. I love sleeping in my own bed. And I love going out for a day and giving 100% to that individual or those individuals and trying my best to understand why it is they want my time. Like, what can I do for them? And, and you know, working out how I can best deliver that in that day. But I don't other than sort of the satisfaction of delivering good days out, which is great and getting return clients and five-star reviews or whatever it is, it doesn't personally give me much on a sort of very personal level. Whereas the expeditions, 
give me a huge amount that I've tried in vain to articulate through various articles I've written for people like Sidetracked and um, sort of long format posts that I post, put on my Facebook occasionally. Like I, I've described being on expedition and at high altitude as, as sort of 3D and a very clear and crisp reality that I thrive in and that I just want to be in all the time and then when I come back down to sea level <laughs> it's good, good use of that um, life I find is very very busy and quite foggy and I find it really difficult to create clarity and to create um, space to be able to think and to be able to breathe and to be able to grow and develop whereas when I'm on expedition I seem to be able to very easily find vast amounts of space headspace that is not metaphorical space uh, or physical space sorry um to be able to think and to put my life in order and to be able to look ahead and all those sorts of things so i come back from high altitude trips rested which is a really difficult thing that people don't understand i feel really rested and i feel absolutely psyched off my face for what's happening next and i can see it i can i can it's clear as clear as day, whereas I've just spent the whole summer here in North Wales and it's been amazing, but I have no idea what I've done for the last four and a half months. I've just, it, it's all just a blur and I haven't really been able to see the woods through the trees because I've had an exam last week. Um, so I, I literally can't wait until Friday when I go back to the world, which I so dearly love. And I go to Manchester airport and I, put on these headphones I'm wearing now and I disappear into a, a another universe that to me is a completely normal place to exist. And there's a few of us that sort of dip in and out of it. And historically I've spent a vast amount, potentially too much time <laughs> in, in that world and very little time in this sort of uh, more, more normal world down here. But actually that is my norm kind of uh, up there. So yeah, it's a real juxtaposition of these two two landscapes that I find myself in. And I did struggle initially being home all summer. Um, I had to take myself off to France for three or four days just to kind of reset because I felt claustrophobic and slightly sort of stifled, not being able to sort of see and, and have clarity. So, yeah, it's, I know other people find this through like cold water swimming or or running where they can then suddenly switch into like almost into um, flow state, for example. And sure, getting on lead on a hard rock climb for me would kick me regularly into some sort of flow state. But I almost feel like I can enter into some sort of flow state for weeks on end when I'm on a big 8,000 meter trip. You know what I mean? And then you come home and this is my favorite bit of all this sort of stuff you know you come home from these trips and nobody cares like no one no one cares um and the whole sort of coming home concept is something i have written about and i i after a big trip in 2018 i was away for four and a half months with one client and i guided him around the seven summits and it was an amazing trip super successful and steve now has uh, the Guinness World Record for completing the seven summits in the shortest amount of time. But it wasn't really anything to do with the record. It was about two, well, now really good friends 
going super low key and achieving something pretty magic. But after that trip, I hadn't, well, previous to that trip, I hadn't even considered how I would feel after that trip. And I was all, I'm all too aware, uh, aware of sort of post-exhibition blues and the come down from big trips. I'm totally 100% aware of that. I talk about it to my teams regularly. But this one was like monstrous in comparison to other ones that I'd had. So for, for quite a few months, I was um, not really myself. I'd put on a brave face and go to work and... I would try and chat to people about it, but no one really kind of gets it because they weren't there. And those people that I know that do do expeditions who can empathize, they lent an ear, but they still weren't there. And it was just me and Steve that know what that trip meant to us. And eventually a friend said to me, why don't you write about it? And I was like, I'm rubbish at writing. I got like pants, pants grades at GCSE and dyslexic. And he's like, no one's going to read it. Just write it down. And then I ended up, I ended up, finding that process remarkably cathartic um and i actually ended up writing something i didn't think was too bad which for me to say is it's quite amazing and i sent it to a couple of friends and they sort of worked a bit of magic on it and then i sent it into sidetracked and they did their magic and what resulted was um a very very special a very personal piece that seemed to resonate with quite a lot of people uh when it got published so it's sort of, I mean, it's decreasingly so, but it's the big unspoken thing. Like, it's just, I, I, I think this is maybe the wrong way to take this, but I, you know, I've sat, I think I've said this on this podcast before to someone, but I sat down in the milk aisle of Tesco's in Carlisle when I was 22 years old and I cried after coming back from the Congo. And it's all that, like everything you just said, it's all wrapped up in there. And it took me a long time to realize that I wasn't crying because of how scared I'd been. I was crying because I wanted to go back. And that's that's kind of, I mean, I shouldn't say it like that. That's kind of fucked up. <laughs> or is it? Um, I, I don't think it is. I think you, you know as well as anybody the emotional journey that these trips take you on. And, you know, when you come back, you, depending on, perhaps how how long the duration of the trip was. I mean, I've tried to put an equation to this, and I think it's something to do with um, time, the amount of time slash duration of the trip, um, plus sort of um, how far away from reality you can get yourself. So the further away from society, the more remote, you know, that sort of thing. So time plus remoteness plus how much physical and emotional energy you had to give to it. So if you add all that up, the time, the remoteness away from normality and the physical output, which for most of us on these big expeditions is vast, especially when it comes to summit pushes or big pushes on big big faces, emotional and physical um, uh, and psychological as well, all, all the ologies, um, that equals magnitude of post-exhibition come down. Right? And there's just an evolution in that. and. Uh, I've kind of grown to love the post-exhibition come down. I know exactly how it feels. And I know that one morning I will wake up and I will feel different and I will be back. Like, I don't know how long that will take. It might just be three days. Even a Kilimanjaro trip might give me a little blues for a couple of days. 
even though I've been up it nearly 40 times, it still hits me. That's how much I love this stuff. Um, but yeah, after, after that trip with Steve, four and a half months, success, success, success. Totally amazing. I didn't post once on social media. It was all for us. I came home to a massive hole. I often describe it to people who don't have any idea what I'm talking about, about finishing the best book you've ever read. And when you close that final page, you sit there in your rocking chair or on your sofa or wherever it is, and you take a deep breath and you think, fuck, what do I do with my life now? But times that by, for me, it would feel like thousands, and then you have a void to fill. But what happens is you do bounce back and you, and you do come back present with more bounce in your step, with more psych for life, for more zest for everything. But the, that little spell can take time. And it's really difficult for people around you. Like, it's as difficult for them as it is for you. I to- totally. Yeah. I mean, it's you yeah, like, this is amazing to talk about because it's like looking in a mirror. Despite it's not just it's not just because you've got a shaved head and a beard, but <laughs> you're both bald. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, it's it's exactly how I feel. The only thing I'll deliberately challenge you on, everything I agree with, and there's loads I want to talk about, is this thing about normality and re- so reality, and it's the thing that winds me up the most. And I've learned to like I'm getting older and uglier, and I, I don't get grumpy about it anymore. I just get grumpy in my head. But is when people say, "What's it like to come back to reality?" And I used to be like, well, I wouldn't necessarily say it, but I used to think, well, hang on, they're both reality. You know, they're just different versions of reality. But now I go even more kind of hipster and um, rebellious with it, which upsets me about myself. And I just think, actually, (laughs) it's more real. It's more normal. Like the way we communicate while we're in those places, the way that we live, the decisions that we make, you know, I'm not really addicted to anything while I'm out there. I don't like constantly search for my phone or like panic about whether or not I've paid the water bill or, you know, whatever is going on. And actually, this is like entry-level armchair expedition philosophy, but I feel like that's more of a reality. It's more of a natural way to live um, than home life. It's changed since I've had kids, but that's a different conversation. Yeah, no, I would totally echo that that resonates perfectly um i call it reality just because most of the people that i speak to that would make more sense yeah and often i just don't feel like i need to get my soapbox out and sort of throw that down people's you know faces because often people say things that they don't mean the the one that gets gets me right up is people calling me lucky Um, (laughs) and and i had a really good chat with tom livingston about this uh just in the kitchen like over a cup of tea um and i i've had to really talk to myself about this and all i've come to the conclusion is that they don't actually mean lucky it's not they don't mean you're lucky they just see it as fortunate or you know they, well, they see it as lucky but they don't actually mean it but then sometimes if i've got nothing else to do i will just absolutely lynch them for attributing all of success and summits and safe expeditions to luck it just seems wholly unfair totally i mean i have had (laughs) the same problem for a long time and i think actually my my personal assessment of it is lucky has become a single word that actually doesn't mean luck i don't even think they're suggesting there's luck involved i think what they mean is you're so fortunate now that that word doesn't work either because it's the same thing fortune 
your life is really inspiring and impressive and I like it and I'm telling you that I like it and that it's inspiring. That's a nice way of looking at it. Um, and there's an element of like maybe positive jealousy. Like I look at people who I think, God, you're so lucky. And I don't mean luck at all. What I mean is I wish I'd got that or done that and worked as hard as you have to get that. Um, yeah. Because that's, you know, that's a different, there's a different conversation here, but there's a big difference between luck and chance. I think chance has probably played into things for both of us. If you hadn't met Tim yeah, or if you hadn't, you know, been a boy scout or whatever um yeah. yeah chance and luck i mean that's a podcast in its own right um i'm not like um i'm not naive enough to think that i can control everything on an expedition i can't you know you cannot do that um but i also stand proud that i can uh spend a lot of time preparing and organizing and considering all the elements so that we reduce the surprises or the uncertainties and put as many, many things in our favor as possible. And that generally results in almost no surprises. And if something does crop up, I've already thought about it and considered it and have an answer for it without having to sort of stop and work it out. And then the result of that is usually increased safety and success. Yeah. Or just luck, if you prefer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm definitely out of like podcast interview in that mode now. I'm more into like, hang on, I, I actually want like, oh, I'm I'm curious as to what you think about this because I think things yeah. too. Um, but how much of the immense pleasure, joy, etc., that you get out of expeditions that result in such massive post-expedition blues, do you think comes down to purpose? Um, and I mean, that's from for me. That, that's a very loaded question. But like, do you feel? purposeful like a i've got to keep these people alive give them a positive experience yeah there's a slightly contrived nature to the job like we don't have to do this we don't have to be here but we are and we are doing this and as a team you know leadership role etc is it purpose or not that's a big question isn't it i feel like the times i've spent in the mountains have been worthwhile and valuable for many many reasons and there are specific key moments where i'm just thinking of two particular moments which can only have happened due to having spent you know the previous 14 years in the mountains to be able to make those decisions in that moment to to make that moment happen and those moments these two moments in particular are so impossible to explain that they almost feel like otherworldly and um and i would just feel like in response to your question i think like if that wasn't enough purpose and drive in its own right then i don't know what is i feel like i can find purpose in most of the things that i do um and particularly in the bigger mountains um and I've always, like, I've always tried really hard. This is kind of a bit businessy, but I've always tried really hard to want to be on that mountain for more reasons than the, the money I'm making for it. So um, I've always wanted to have at least 51% drive to be there because I wanted to be on that mountain with that person doing that thing. And if 49% was because I get paid for it, then that was okay. I could deal with that. And then there was a scenario recently where that completely flipped and I was like, I'm not really that bothered about going to this mountain, but I'll make good money. And I like the individual, 
like very happy to go and it would be really fun spending a month with them or whatever but I don't really want to go to this mountain and I had a long conversation with my friend I was like I'm probably like 85% there for the cash and they were like well if that's the first time in 16 years of guiding and all the rest of it that you've done something purely for the cash then I'd say you're doing something right so don't worry about it I was like hmm okay so I went I think that's probably quite good advice as long as it doesn't become 85% every time. Yeah, no, it hasn't again since. Um, well, very rarely, but, or certainly not on a big mountain, but very occasionally when you're doing sort of uh, local guiding and stuff. Another thing that I think is really interesting about you, which is perhaps rarer than lots of people I've spoken to, and I might just have got this completely wrong, um, is you seem to spend most of your time in professional mode um and seem to get like loads out of that i mean the reason i ask is i was being interviewed for something the other day and the lady said when was the last time you went on a personal trip and i sort of i went uh outside of like a week with my wife somewhere uh 2011 she was like you know yeah yeah. and it's just because everything i do i do for work and i'm you know again don't want to make it about me and my career but do you get lots out of it? And that's a terrible way to phrase it. Do you think that you get so much out of guiding and working in a professional capacity that actually that's more than enough for most of your year? Or do you go on lots of personal trips? Um, I go on a lot of personal trips. I do. I spend a lot of time climbing for myself or on big mountain trips for myself um a little bit less in the last few years but um yeah most years there's a huge mountain in there that's just for me but equally um I don't know how or why um maybe it's my personality or the way in which I do these trips but most of them very rarely ever feel like work honestly uh, and I know that's a bit of like a cheesy thing that people in the outdoors love to say. Um, and sure, some days feel like work. I have to put my waterproofs on and go navigate around the hills. Feels like work. Um, but I genuinely am happy to say that because I'm, you know, uh, completely self-employed and run my own sort of little company, I get clients coming back time and time again. And the work might be me sitting down with a guidebook and pen and paper and thinking, right, how can I give this person what they want but as soon as I'm on the hill it never feels really like work even when I'm running around like a headless chicken counting counting freeze-dried meals and all that sort of thing it just feels like exactly where I want to be doing exactly what I want to be doing um see I do go on personal trips and bizarrely I also normally after a big Himalayan season I will seek out um this is blending back to the sort of post-exhibition blues thing. I seek out some beach time. So I will often try and adjust my flights to maybe go back via somewhere in Southeast Asia just for three or four days where I don't talk to anyone, but I just decompress. Um, and that's become quite an important part post really big trips. So I'll go and lie on a beach. I might read a book. I might just sit or, or just walk and think. Uh, might even open my laptop and send a few messages to some friends um but i very much use that as a decompression um but yeah personal trips are important to me i've done a huge amount of personal rock climbing this summer and that's really rewarding um 
but yeah, the big match, like last year I was, or two, 2021, I was out on Pobeda again. That was a three-week trip in Kyrgyzstan just for myself. Um, again, yeah, lots of trips in the Alps for myself. Um, it's important, I think, for me. But then I don't have kids. <laughs> Pause. Um, and I don't have very many commitments. So I'm, I'm in a position where I'm able to be reasonably selfish. And it's not a problem because nobody's really impacted by it. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So why don't you live your entire life on the road? Why don't you just bounce from trip to trip? Beach, well, I have done. Beach to beach. Um, well, beach to beach, yeah. I mean, I could, I could tell you quite a lot about some good beaches in Southeast Asia. <laughs> um, I have done. I, I mean, one of the reasons I, I kind of mentioned very briefly earlier, I kind of feel like I've reached the end of the road with what is possible to do uh, in the high altitude mountains-ish, which is because I, I just went for it. So once the gates started opening, I was on six, eight, ten expeditions a year, whether that's two or three Kilimanjaro's, a trip to South America, over to Elbrus for a couple of trips, into the Himalayas, spring and autumn. And in between that, you've got like Scotland and here. And I, I was just on the road. And after that trip, in 2018 I turned 30 and I was like you know this is not a sustainable life like I had this conversation I was like I love it like I absolutely love it I wouldn't have changed anything but it just started occurring to me that there was a lot of things falling by the wayside like friendships and relationships were just basically impossible um i.e with a partner um, and I just realized that actually those sorts of things have a lot of value. And I knew that, but I wasn't really too worried about them until that time. So from 30-ish, so six years ago, seven years ago, I've just slowly started changing the direction very subtly and just sort of peeled back a bit. Um, I bought a house here in North Wales. So I had a base, which was remarkable. Um, even though my housemate, who just walked in, um, would laugh at me saying she's probably seen me for about 30 days in the last three years or whatever. Um, <clears throat> well, until this summer. So that really helped. And I've just, yeah, I mean, I, I've just sort of grown up a bit, especially in the last few years with COVID and everything else. It just feels time ready to kind of shift a little bit. Well, I have a few questions. One is, how have you found the tra- <laughs> how have you found the transition? Honestly, um, well, it was really smooth and very much on my terms um, because I, I could see things over there in the future that I wanted, and I couldn't get those if I carried on in the same direction. So I just had to tilt slightly. But only this year has it properly like. <clears throat> black and white changed i've taken on um well i got accepted onto the british mountain guides scheme 
which is quite an all-encompassing uh, sort of three and a half plus year uh, process. And it re- it's going to require a huge amount of me in its own right. So this is very much, I mean, actually, I was joking to the guys. We had a, a week assessment just last week and I was joking with them how it felt like a huge expedition I'd been on all summer or preparing for. And uh, this six days was the summit push. And it, and it remarkably was when we got to like day five and I could see the end in sight, emotions changed. The second we finished day six, I was suddenly like the, the, the blinkers were off. Um, the the uh, headphones were off. I could see and hear the world again. You know, I was back immediately. And it's exactly the same as this big summits. So um, the transition was super smooth and it was fine until this summer when I got sort of a bit of a slap around the face and I was going to go back to Pobeda and I had a long, hard think about that. And I was like, nope, I, I need to stay at home. And then I was like, I could go on expedition to um, Southeast Asia in the summer and get paid. I was like, no, like I need to be at home. I need to be rock climbing. I need to be cranking and I need to be doing all the preparation for this assessment. So it was, it was good, but it wasn't normal for me to be here. But, but there were many positives. Why make that transition? I suppose there's two questions in here with the first being, you know, you say you feel like you've reached the end of the road for the Himalayan stuff, you know, to ask a del- it's a deliberately difficult question. Um, although I ask it with kindness is like, well, you could just spend the next 30 years trying harder unclimbed routes and unclimbed mountains. You know, they're there. There's a lot of them. Why not just do that 12 months a year or six months a year? Why transition away from it? Well, I don't often try hard unclimbed things with clients. That would be personal things. And I would hope to continue doing personal trips um, for a long time yet, even if they were less often, like every couple of years. Um, I mean, I've not really done like loads of massive Himalayan sort of first ascent or anything like that. It's not ever really sort of come into my world like, you know, folk like Nick Bullock and other folk who who hit that sort of vein really hard. I mean, I look look to that as a sort of different different kettle of fish to a lot of the things I do. Um, but by the end of the road, I mean, like, I've done 25, six uh, big Himalayan trips now. And if you add all that up, that's nearly three and a half years of my life um, in Nepal. And, and like I said earlier, I wouldn't change a thing. I, I would do it all again exactly the same. Um, but it does feel like, you know, having having organised and guided seven summits, and then last year, uh, 2021, I had an incredible opportunity to guide um, on seven eight thousanders, sort of back to back in a year, which is just like, you know, if you told me I might get to do that, I mean, if you told me I'd get to do half the things I've done when I was 21, I'd have just laughed at you. Um, but that also included getting the opportunity to guide um, my client on K2. And, you know, there was a record in there as well. I mean, I've been involved with quite a few records for my clients on various big mountains, and there's nothing in there for me other than it's my job um, and to try and help them achieve what they want to achieve. So getting the opportunity to guide on K2 and Kenton and I were there together and jointly we became the first British guides to ever guide K2. So that was quite a cool accolade for us. Not that it means much to me, but it's quite nice to have a small pat on the back occasionally. But um, yeah, I mean, I just don't know where and how it goes from here. Um, There's potentially a really exciting opportunity in the spring with um, 
uh, a gentleman who was on your podcast previously, but I'm not sure how much I can say about that. <laughs> um, cliffhanger. <laughs> um, but I guess the way it would be in the future is like, I still want to go, but it would be very much as and when on a trip that excites me with clients, perhaps that I've worked with and have helped grow and build towards something. And then I, I'm part of their journey to, towards that. So I'll still be going and I still 100% want to be there. I just don't feel the desire to be there all the time, just ticking through. And yeah, I could just not do the BMG and I could just carry on cruising with my comfortable life here in North Wales and popping over to Himalayas. But the makeup of Himalayan commercial climbing has shifted uh, dramatically thanks to COVID and uh, many other things such as sort of um, the 14 Peaks film and NIMS and the way that these are perceived. And I'm just not quite sure how it all sits with me and I haven't quite worked that out yet. Um, I always operate almost exclusively, but not entirely on a one-to-one basis. So I go in on really low key, sort of under the radar and we don't cause a fuss and don't have loads of pomp and circumstance and we kind of go in and get things done. And if I can maintain that and a bit of authenticity with that, authenticity uh, with that, then that's fine by me. Well, you know I'm going to ask, but what <laughs> what's changed then? Why has the world of high altitude Him- Himalayan mountaineering or guiding, what's changed? From my perspective, um, being in and around it for, for sort of 12 years or so, and um, being on the ground, what I've seen is a very gradual, subtle shift uh, of, of the sort of, there's, two, there's a couple of factors here, but I'll try and keep it succinct. Um, is that the, the customers, the clients that are coming are now moving away from joining a sort of British, American, New Zealand company like Jagged Globe or Adventure Consultants or whoever, you know, who have been operating on these big mountains for decades and have, uh, you know, incredibly strong um, historical success and good trips and stuff. And going away from sort of signing up with them and going directly to the Nepalese um, companies. So that's one pattern that's happening. Um, And then the other pattern is that the number of um clients wanting to be out on these 8000 meter peaks and these big sort of 7000 meter himalayan trips is increasing hugely um but at the same time the average skill set of one of these clients is also dropping substantially so in summary you've got more people coming which is great uh but less great that those people have substantially less experience and then those individuals are now going not all, not exclusively, but like the market shift has changed like exponentially to the local agencies. Now, um, you could argue that that has got to be a great thing, and that the power and the money should be in the hands of the locals. And I wouldn't um, dispute that. The only time that this causes a problem for me personally is perhaps when safety and logistics are not as they should be and are of substandard, um, which I'm not going to speak out of turn here, but is quite common 
in many of the Nepalese locally run agencies. Not all of them. Some of them are very good and they are pushing the standard and they are investing in their teams and the Sherpas and upskilling. And that is a wonderful thing to witness and to see. But um, in the meantime, we've got a lot more clients coming with less experience going with um, a more basic and less, less, I don't want to use the word professional, but less professional outfits. And that combination means that, unfortunately, when you get onto the hill, there are more incidents, there are more accidents, there are more deaths, and there are more people getting frostbite, and there are more helicopters coming in to pull people off left, left right, and centre. And so it's busy and it's chaotic. Um, and that is the scene that you will have if you go on the south side of Everest or you go on to any of the sort of well-known commercial peaks. It may have been getting busier previously, but it wasn't as chaotic. Um, so I think that is a really soft diplomatic way of answering your question. I thought that was, you know, that was good. You gave us the, the meat of it. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. And I think, you know, you did phrase it well. I think goes without saying that that's a good thing um the last thing we need is 100 you know more of a colonial approach to it all but equally that transition has to be um you know safety first and all that well it was organic um it was a growing thing and the local teams were gaining experience uh and you know learning all the way and it's just suddenly just gone <laughs> and exploded and there's like companies popping up everywhere. Um, and the, the IFMGA does actually operate in Nepal as well, which is an amazing thing. And I think there are now around 60 or 70 IFMGA qualified Nepalese mountain guides, including some females as well, which is absolutely awesome. And watching them on the hill is really cool. And my, my hope is that that will be an inspiration to many of the Sherpas to see that there is this globally recognized qualification of a high standard to uh, aspire to and to perhaps invest in. Yeah, because why is there not that kind of industry standard out in Nepal? I mean, you know, I guess for those who don't know, it might be worth you talking us through. Any Anybody can technically guide on those mountains, right? You don't need a qualification. Well, this might blow your brain, but it's the same for the UK. There's absolutely no legal requirement whatsoever for me or any of my friends who, who work in the outdoors to have any qualifications to take your money and guide you on anything in the UK. So what stop I guess but then in an incident or whatever it's insurance and Exactly. So you would struggle to get any form of insurance that would be interested in covering you. Um, there's like a grey area where some of us are in between qualifications and perhaps we've done the training element of the next level and we want to go out and work and get experience and some insurers will uh, provide sort of cover for that as long as you're sort of under a mentorship kind of scheme or underneath the umbrella of another agency but yeah there is no no legal requirement to have any qualifications in the UK to take people out and that's the same in many countries in the world not all um, but Nepal is obviously the same as that. So there is no, um, but there is also no qualification structure or hasn't been for many, many, many years. So it's very much like passing down the skill set um, through experience. And I would say, excuse me, that the skill set of guiding on a commercial peak is pretty minimal. You just need to know how to clip into a fixed line and go up and down that. Now I could teach that to someone in about half an hour. 
Um, in fact, I do regularly do sort of workshops and, and teach people how to be super efficient at fixed line work. And it's a good skill and it's a way in which facilitates the safest and best approach to these big mountains. But um, if you remove that element, then uh, unfortunately a lot of the skilled workers, the Nepalese workers on the mountain would not know what to do, which is when big problems can happen. Yeah. I also just think like, you know, get my strong opinion out, but let people do what they want as long as it's not hurting others. I just don't get it. Like the idea of, you know, I I just so recommend that somebody went and did like their first summer rock climb in Scotland as a guided day rather than go and Jumar up a snowy peak that they've got no, you know, when you're working one-to-one, it's totally different. You're developing that person's skills. You're on the mountain together. But the idea of joining a circus to go and climb a mountain, sorry, walk up a mountain. Well, I mean, I, I would have to find some middle ground with you there. But I, I, this is where I feel like I'm. my desire to change direction slightly is also um, kind of correct from what you just said. I, I don't like this side of it. And I, I can't deny that it's total nonsense in, in many elements. Like... There are many people on the mountain who are super experienced and they've had long apprenticeships in climbing, mountaineering and done their own things. And they've been here and done that. And then they decide that they'd like to climb the highest mountain in the world because it's just been a dream. And they'll either come with some mates and they'll do that low key in the corner or they'll jump in boards with like Jagged Globe, whoever, and, and they'll do their thing. And then you have loads of other people that just wake up one day and say, I want to climb Everest. And that's fine too. But the problem, which you kind of, just touched on there is that that becomes a problem up on the mountain and then it just seems unfair to the people that have to pick up the pieces and that happens all the time um and it's kind of like um the unconscious incompetent they don't know what they don't know so they then put their hands in the air and say well i didn't know it'd be this cold or i didn't know it'd be this hard and you're like well that's fine but then you know surely somewhere along the line the highest mountain in the world doesn't sound like a piece of cake. Like it's still hard. So I wrestle with this, you know, I, I've kind of uh, publicly said, I'm probably never going to go back to the South side of Everest um, and, and guide that just because it just doesn't do it for me. Like I don't necessarily want to be there myself. So it would be a hundred percent for the money and not percent. Cause I want to be there. Um, I have to be careful I don't shoot myself in the foot because this possible project next year would be on Lotse, which would be next to it, which might involve being slightly part of that circus, but it would be so different to everything else on the mountain, it doesn't really matter. Um, but yeah, north side of Everest, on the other hand, totally and utterly amazing, like epic on all proportions. Nobody there, massive, technically interesting, much safer and because there's no heli rescue every five seconds, it kind of scares off people that don't have very much experience. And then you end up with a much smaller um, condensed population of climbers on that side who are all mega psyched to be there and can handle themselves pretty well. Yeah, and dare I say it, what might feel like an adventurous wilderness experience rather than... It feels pretty wild, yeah. And I feel like a total hypocrite. But then... At one time, I did believe in going up the south side of Everest and I would justify it. And then at some point, don't know when that was, probably 
2019 or something, I just kind of looked around and saw people having their crampons put on for them for the first time and just thought, this has changed too much as a broad spectrum for me to truly believe in it uh, the way I used to. So, Well, you're, you're allowed to change your mind. I know, but it does still feel a bit like, oh, he's been there and done that, and now he's saying it's pants. I'm not saying that at all. Like, if that's what you want to do, go there and have the best time of your life. But just don't expect someone with heaps and heaps of experience who's trying to offer you some advice to have much sympathy when you get frostbite. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like, you know, I I get what you're saying. You're pretty well poised to now, if you wanted to, spend the rest of your career guiding on Everest once a season and probably making quite a lot of money. But I've lost count of how many people asked me if I was going to become the next Kenton. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, if if anyone's interested in his views on the matter, then I did interview him. And <laughs> yeah. you know, I asked him, Are you a sellout? And he gave me a really good answer. Um by asking me if I was a sellout, the bastard. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, take that back. Yeah, yeah. No, but he was good. But I don't know. I just think with what you were saying, my view on it for what it's worth, and I am happy to be, you know, if anybody listening thinks I'm being difficult, then feel free to email me. But I just think there's an arrogance to waking up one morning and deciding you're going to climb Everest when you've got very little or no mountaineering experience. It just I think that would be okay if you then spent the next X number of years. Totally. Prepare. I mean, I get emails weekly, monthly from people that say, John, I'd like to climb Everest. Can I do some training with you? And I say, sure, I'll give you a call. I'll have a chat to them. And some of them say, I want to go in eight months' time. And I'm like, cool, what have you done before? And they say, nothing. Can you get me ready? And then I say, well, if you give me all of your time and money for eight months, then yes, I can get you ready. But they're like, oh, no, no, I can't do that. And then some folk are like, I think I'd like to climb Everest if and when I'm ready. And I need someone like you to tell me when that would be. But for now, could we go rock climbing and then winter climbing? And I create this like Excel spreadsheet of a five-year plan for them and say, this is the sort of thing that might work for you. And I will happily dip in and out of that and help upskill you and take you on journeys whenever you need sort of my help or somebody like me. And the rest of the time, you need to get out there and do it yourself. And that works really well. That's quite a core of my work. You know, preparing people for expeditions has become a bit of my niche for the UK side of things that I do, sort of expedition prep. And I love it because I can waffle on about expeditions all day long to somebody that wants to hear about it all and offload all little tiny tidbits and top tips and tiny little microscopic things that um, I've learned the hard way. And that's magic. Yeah, that's great. But yeah, totally. And it just feels a bit like as well, again, it's cheesy and it's super obvious armchair philosophy, but um, spending eight months occasionally getting ready to go to Everest and then having a blast at it, the satisfaction you felt on the summit compared to somebody who'd spent 10 years using all their free time and money getting ready. Like, you know, I would like to think and strongly suspect that at the top, after all of that time, all that graft, all those Scottish winter routes and all that time in the Alps and that when they did, you know, um, Mont Blanc and all this stuff, like they're going to feel like they've been on a journey, like an odyssey to get to that summit rather than just bought themselves a ticket to the top. And it's such a, so much more of an enjoyable way to do things. 
I mean, Everest is a very, very unique thing. And sure, that kind of similar pattern happens on other mountains around the world. You know, take Snowdon, there'll be 6,000 people up at the top of Snowdon most weekends if it's sunny during the summer holidays. Most of them completely inappropriately dressed and it's the hardest thing they've ever done in their life. But I just think that's magic. But that's not the same as going, I'm going to go to Everest tomorrow. And some of those people will make it and that's great. And they'll have what they think might be like an amazing experience. And that's great. But I agree with you. I think that somehow if you could persuade them that the rewards and the feelings and energy and everything that they would get back from that experience would be exponentially greater and exponentially less selfish um, would, would be better if they took the time. And, and I often say to folk, like, you can't have too much experience to go and do something. Like I was going to Aconcagua and some, one of my clients said, oh, I, I, think, I was thinking about coming, but, you know, I've, I've done quite a lot of things bigger than that or harder than that. And I was like, so what? Like, you are allowed to come and do something and enjoy it the whole way. If, you, if, you, if he came... I found the whole trip relatively straightforward and was able to deploy all his skills and just sort of a really smooth journey, then bloody brilliant. Like amazing. It doesn't always have to be hard. You don't always have to endure and get absolutely smashed to pieces. You're allowed to go on these big mountains and actually enjoy them and have a really nice time. Like I've recently put a few videos on YouTube of climbing Everest, climbing K2, climbing Kansanjunga. And my favorite feedback is that I make it look too easy. And that, like, if you want to massage my ego, just say that, you make it look too easy. And I'm like, well, I, great, thank you very much. And I really appreciate that you recognize that. But that's because, A, it's my job, and B, I've done a lot of it. So it shouldn't look too hard. And when the weather does turn a bit and the days are a bit longer, that's all right because I've got thousands of days in the bank to draw on and it's okay. Um, so that's like my favorite thing about posting videos on YouTube is people telling me off because I made K2 look too easy. Yeah. But then I think, again, I'm opening myself up to serious flack here and this is <laughs> genuinely a question that's not loaded, but because uh, I get all of the ways it is hard, but I just think there's a public misconception around mountaineering of like, you know, I would guess um, that the Snow Leopard project is so much harder. You know, climbing five, 7,000 meter peaks is so much harder than any of the 8,000ers. You guessed correctly. Absolutely correctly. Uh, I mean, I could, with absolute pleasure, tell you for hours about the three, ty the three times I've tried to complete this project. And in summary, in 2012, we failed on the first one. That was a bit of a shitter and then climbed the next three in quick succession and then went home. And then two years later, we went back and with the same guy, we climbed the first one and we skied down it. So that was really cool. So we added an extra element in there. And then we went to the last one, Pobeda, which is the one with the huge reputation. And I got hit on the head by Rockfall at sort of 6,000, helicoptered off, hospital stitches, went home. The death rate and statistics on Pobeda are really, really bad. And nobody guides it commercially. So these statistics are based on individuals who are going to climb this 
fully aware of what is happening and what is going on. So this is like experienced alpinists and climbers turning up to a very big mountain and the stats are still awful. So 2021, I went with a fellow guide who I was working on K2 with afterwards called Rob Smith, who's a total legend and has done a million and 10 things more than I've ever done. And we gave that mountain everything, like literally everything. Um, And we turned back 200 meters below the summit. Uh, And it's not the first time I've turned back 200 meters below a summit. I did that on Dalagiri as well. That was pretty hard. But that was, it took us eight days to go up and down Poveda. Eight days of alpine climbing, no fixed lines, tent on our back, food, cooker, gas, looking out for each other, crap weather, and a very, very, I mean, medium technicality, but a very committing route. Um, very, very committing. And we turned back 200 meters from the top. Why turn, Why did you turn back 200 meters from the top? <sighs> um because in that moment, when you calculate everything that's happening, it was the right decision. It was going to take us too long to get from there to the top and back. And our acceptable level of risk would have been tipped. So we made the incredibly hard decision to turn back. But it's funny because like, I had this a friend of mine, one of my closest friends, who I actually um, spoke to on the podcast like two days ago or yesterday, whenever it was, he turned round at 8,100 on Everest um, on a personal trip. And he said he was, you know, he's more proud of that than he thinks would have been in the summit. Yeah, I'm yeah. more impressed by you turning back 200 meters from the top than I would have been if you said, we got to the top, dude, but we rolled the dice. Yeah. I'd be like, well, is that a good thing? Well, I, I can never roll the dice with clients. It's not fair. It's my job to to bring them home complete with every finger tip that they started with so but what i choose to do in my own time is different and i will inevitably push a little bit further not that much further but i will push further and i will accept more risk um because if me and my climbing partner both agree then that's fine but yeah i've had to make the decision to turn back a few times, once with a client on Dalagiri at 200 meters below the summit due to avalanche risk uh, and a couple of other times. But to make those decisions is really, really hard. And the second you turn your back on it, the doubts flood in, the should I, would I, should have, all the things come in. But I've stood strong by the fact that every time I've turned back from something, whether it's in the Alps or here or wherever, it's been the right decision. And it's always the right decision because it has to be the right decision because the the outcome is that I'm still here and if I want to, I can go back. Whereas the outcome, if I carried on, is unknown and it, I might not be here and I might not be able to go back. So exclusively, it is always the right decision. And as many people tell you, by the time you reach that decision, you're probably already past where you should have turned back already. But it doesn't make doesn't make it any easier. But yeah, I'm proud of that, and I'm proud of Rob, and I think about it all the time because it's two hundred bloody meters on a massive mountain, and in retrospect, the weather didn't turn, and we made it down through the technical terrain back to the tent quicker than we thought we would, and blah blah blah. But yeah, in the moment, it was the right thing to do. Yeah, isn't hindsight a bitch? <laughs> it sucks. Yeah. 
Cool. So you know what's coming? Well, I guess so, yeah. The last so, two questions of every podcast. So, John, what's my first question? Um, what scares me? Well, what does scare you? Well, as you know, I, I've given this a little bit of thought and I keep coming back to the same thing. Um, and I feel a little bit sort of selfish having an answer which is purely about me, but I guess that's okay given this is a podcast. But um, the short version is dying. But the longer version of that is dying too young, like dying dying soon um, before I feel like ready to to leave the world, which hopefully you might do as you get old and all this stuff. Um, but also, yeah, so dying too young and sort of leaving behind a world and people that I'm I'm not ready to to leave behind, or certainly they hopefully aren't ready to <laughs> to have me gone. Um, and it's also dying in the mountains to, together. Um, it just seems so unfair to that I just really don't want to to die young and to die in the mountains, and that definitely scares me. Whether it be like avalanche or rockfall or anything like that. Um, and it's very present in my world. It's not unusual that people do die. Um, yeah, but I would just feel like it, it would hurt if a place that I love so much and many people find a lot of solace and um, enjoy spending a lot of time in that environment, it, it would hurt me so much if that was the environment that took me too young. It's a bit self selfish, but um, yeah, that's my answer. I like it. I like the answer. I think it's very honest, and I'm actually genuinely surprised by how little that comes up. Does it come up? Have people said that before? I think maybe once somebody said dying, maybe, right. but I can't remember. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, that is the only thing that. Every time I was trying to think of if there's anything else, that that concept of dying would just like bombard back into my brain. So um, there are obviously things that uh, away from me that scare me. You know, like the way in which the world is changing, and uh, from a glo- like a global platform financially and politi- politically, and obviously uh, from a climate perspective. But um, as we were talking about mountains, I thought that was more relevant. Well, and I think most of us that are aware and aren't a bit loony are scared of those things, but probably shouldn't say that out loud. <laughs> yeah. And my last question. <laughs> what gives me hope? Um, again, I've got like one word for it and then a bit of fluff. So love gives me hope. That is fluffy, but good. <laughs> so... Um, love to and love from, um, like a two-way thing, from friends, from family. Uh, and I sort of touched on earlier how when I got to about 30, I started to have regrets that I was missing relationships with friends and they were suffering. Um, and subsequently, I've made a huge conscious effort to invest time because time is the most valuable thing we have, full stop. It never gets replaced. So how you choose to spend your time is incredibly valuable to me and who I spend it with. So I've made a conscious effort to spend more time with those that I love and uh, and build friendships. Um, um, yeah, and it, I guess love is also the drive and the reason to come back every time. You know, it's the drive to make the 
best decisions I can in the mountains is to drive not to push myself because it's cool or because it, it'll be a good Instagram post or because my clients want me to. I just won't do it um, because life's more important. Uh, and I guess, yeah, and the love for big expeditions and big, big mountains, which is sort of my thing. And those very, very intense 3D magical moments that are really hard to attain and require a huge amount of us or me to get to those places. And when they do happen, they just confirm everything that's right with the world for me. And I think, you know, here's my bit of cheesy fluff for the end. I think love makes it a lot easier to come home, which, you know, it's learned behavior on my part. Absolutely. Yeah. Having, having really core desires and reasons to come back quickly once everything is done is really important. Well, there's a whole other conversation out there around. Does <laughs> Lots of cheese and fluff. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, Maybe you could call this podcast cheese and fluff. Yeah. Yeah. Cheese and fluff with John Gupta. <laughs> um, that could be your book. Um, <laughs> Maybe one day. It begs the question, which has to be for another day because we're so far over time, but um, that's my fault. But does loving people to that level and having so much to come home to affect your decision-making in a negative way? So far, not. Um, No. Like, I've I've recently um, met someone who I'm now in a relationship with and it, it's absolutely amazing. Um, it's the first time for a very long time, you know, I felt kind of this way. Um, so, yeah, I touched on earlier how wonderfully selfish I am able to be because I have very few ties. Um, that's a very selfish thing to say. But now I feel like there is another element in my life um, to consider. And I'm really interested to see how that will feel on this next trip that I'm off to this week. You know, the two mountains that I'm going to are big. Um, the one I know inside out and the other one is new to me, but is also relatively low technicality and historically super safe. So there'll be a nice sort of testing ground to see if there's any change in how I feel. I'm not expecting to feel any different. Um, I have such a deep-rooted um connection with the mountains and the Himalayas that um, I don't expect there to be much change but I don't have my own little people um, or like this relationship is pretty new so I don't know we could ask that again in six months a year whatever it might and it might well change I know it changes for many of my friends I know it does um, what is acceptable and a lot of them reel back from doing the personal trips and pushing themselves so hard on a personal level but continue to do the work trips because i would agree that the work trips are generally much much lower risk and um and an acceptable level to to justify so we'll see well that was all amazing thank you very much we'll leave it there thank you it's a pleasure Thanks for listening. For more information, head to theadventurepodcast.co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. 
And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes.